Good morning. I'm going to get started while uh, the last few people are trickling in since my responsibilities are introductory and I know you're eager to, to hear the substance of our program. My name is Ann Browdy and I'm the director of the Women's Studies and Religion program here at Harvard Divinity School. Um, this program was really started in response to the concerns and insights of students about the limitations of the curriculum and the faculty in the 1970s when women students first started coming to the school in large numbers for the first time. Um, they expressed enormous dissatisfaction with an all-male faculty and curriculum. And this program was the result. And for the last 30-some uh, years, um, this program has contributed a great deal to changing both the curriculum and the faculty. Women and gender are now the largest single common interest among HDS faculty. Um, and that's quite a shift from zero to um, 60, I would say, um, in a, a relatively short amount of time. Um, today's panel on engaged scholarship, I think, is a wonderful transition from the morning program on vital conversations where you were really exploring your own positionality in discussions about religion and pluralism. And now we, are, we have a chance to see how people who've been through a similar process then incorporate those, the resulting thoughts and insights into their scholarship and how their scholarship is motivated by those concerns. Um, we're very proud of the group that is here today. As you probably know from carefully reading everything we've mailed you, um, uh, we bring five research associates every year and appoint them to the HDS faculty. We vet them incredibly carefully. They are brilliant and doing cutting edge work that is going to push forward, that is pushing forward our knowledge of religion, uh, gender, and difference. Um, you have a list of all of them before you. Does that, everybody have this, a piece of paper that looks like this? Uh, not everybody has one. Are there more? Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, if you, this is Tracy Wall, the queen of the Women's Studies and Religion Carriage House, uh, and also program coordinator. Um, uh, we're located just across the street behind the Dean's residence, so please come and see us. Um, if you flip this sheet over, you will see a list of all of the scholars who have participated in this program. And what you probably will see there are people whose books you read in undergrad. <laughs> and what you see before you today are the people who are writing the books that you will be reading and assigning to your undergrads uh, 10 years from now. <laughs> so um, this is your chance to get in on the ground floor. So without further ado, um, let me introduce today's group. I'm gonna introduce them very briefly and then we'll, we'll um, ask them to introduce their projects in a conversational way and I hope have some time um, for questions from you all after, after that. 
Um, on my far right, I'm pleased to introduce Professor Zara Mobile, who comes to us from the Institute for Humanities and Cultural Studies in Iran, in uh, Tehran. She is a visiting professor of philosophy at the University of Tehran, which is where uh, she did her education. Um, she's the author of two books in Persian. I can't read them, um, although I hope to be able to read her next one in English, um, uh, including Faith as Reason, a Theological Approach to Feminist Epistemologies. Um, she specializes in feminist philosophy, Islamic philosophies, and Islamic studies. Um, on my immediate right is Professor Damaris Parsitau, who comes to us from um, Egerton University in Egerton, Kenya. Um, where she is a distinguished leader in uh, I, an innumerable number of women's leadership initiatives. Um, I can't take the time to list all of them. She is senior lecturer at the Department of Philosophy, History, and Religious Studies. Um, uh, and she holds a PhD in religion, gender, and public life from Kenyatta University. She's also an Achidna Global Scholar at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and founder and executive director of Let Maasai Girls Learn Initiative, um, as well as um, the author of a large number of monographs and research publications. Um, on my left is Anna Sun who is chair of the Department of Sociology and Associate Professor of Sociology and Asian Studies at Kenyon College. Um, she did her doctorate in sociology at Princeton. Um, uh, and I'll just mention one of her publications that has made an enormous splash, her book on Confucianism as a World Religion, Contested Histories and Contemporary Realities. Um, and she is one of the few people who can tell you everything you always wanted to know and were afraid to ask about religion in contemporary China. Um, so do ask. Um, on, her, on her left is um, Professor Wyland Wilson, who comes to us from um, Tuskegee University in Alabama, in the United States. <laughs> um, uh, where she was associate professor in the College of Agriculture and associate director of the National Center for Bioethics in Research and Healthcare. Um, she is author of Economic Ethics and the Black Church, which came out from Palgrave in 2017, and numerous research publications. Um, finally, I want to introduce Barbara Zimbalis. We noted that our group this year is exclusively in the second half of the alphabet. So um, it's a little uh, different from what we're used to. Um, she is uh, a medievalist um, uh, who is in the Department of English at the University of Texas at El Paso. And she is uh, working on her monograph in progress, Translating Christ in the Middle Ages, 
visionary translation, divine rhetoric, and verbal devotion in England, France, and the Low Countries. Now, I should have mentioned um, what you probably already know, which is that each of them will be teaching a course uh, that's closely related to the book that they're working on. So this is a chance to really see research in progress and get close to it. You'll hear about those courses tomorrow. Uh, when you hear about all the courses. But today we're going to ask uh, each scholar to introduce their research briefly so that you'll be some of the first to know about it. So let's see, who am I going to pick on here? Maybe I'll start with Damaris, uh, if you don't mind. Um, Damaris, your project is based on five years of ethnographic research on the discipline of women's bodies in a Pentecostal church in your native Kenya. What are the repercussions that you saw of theologies that make women responsible for sin because of their bodies? Thank you, Anne. Thank you, everybody. Uh, so for the last five years, I've been researching on uh, Neo-Pentecostal Church in Kenya. This is a church that is founded by a charismatic prophet and um, medical doctor who um, graduated with a PhD in the US and left the US to go and preach because he has been called into the ministry. So he establishes one of the biggest uh, nearly grassroots movement. It's, it's, it's no longer just a church. It's, it's a grassroots movement um, with membership running to about 13 million uh, people. And uh, one of the distinctive characteristics of that movement is a huge um, a membership that constitutes women and girls. And uh, the central teachings and uh, theology of the church is that sex is a very bad sin. And um, in the tense of, of sermons and, 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 and preachings and teachings that I have been able to listen to and record uh, is that um, sin women are at the center of, of sin, and they are totally responsible for everybody else going to heaven because it's a premillennialist church that believes that Jesus Christ is coming anytime soon and that people have to prepare themselves, and particularly women, have to address have to dress to embody holiness. So women are robed in, you know, long flowing dresses and cover themselves all the way to, you know, only their faces are not covered because they have to embody holiness. They have to live out holiness. So, um, and, and, and that's a very, you, you land in Kenya and you see like hundreds of women dressed uh, that way. And so it's really very public and also very political. Uh, it has aroused a lot of political debates about women bodies and women dressing and, you know, lots of interesting discourses going on there. So, um, so, so, so the central message is uh, holiness and, and sexuality. The, the prophet war, as he's called by his followers, um, seems to really think so 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 much and theologies and teach about um, women bodies as locals for sin and sinfulness. So in, in one particular sermon that uh, I, I'll, I'll be able to speak about later, 
uh, it's titled Sex is a Very Bad Scene and Sex Reduces You to a Mere Rotten Loaf of Bread. So he's addressing men and telling, that, uh, telling men that when you engage in uh, sex with unmarried women, then um, you are just like a rotten piece of, of bread. So for me, the repercussions of such theologies is that they reduce, um, you know, they make women's bodies sites of uh, contestation, sites of tensions, uh, sites of sin and death. In one someone particularly, he preaches that uh, um, you engage in sex with women, uh, then you automatically die spiritually and physically. And so that, to me, as a feminist scholar, doesn't um, you know, put women necessarily in, in, in a good position. It's not good for their health, mental, physical, or, or spiritual, particularly for women who already are struggling with a lot of issues, uh, particularly gender-based violence. Kenya, uh, Kenya is known for uh, rampant gender and sexual-based violence, particularly female genital mutilation, you know, something I work uh, so hard to en ensure that it's eradicated. So so some of those messages are counterproductive to what uh, um, feminists are doing and government policies towards creating uh, more healthier women, more stronger women in the Kenyan society. So, um, so it has so many repercussions. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and, and one of the things that uh, baffled me is how young girls uh, begin to perceive themselves as, as, as you know, uh, teenage girls have, of course, body issues all over the world. People are grappling with issues of, you know, how they are perceived, they are, or how they perceive themselves. And then when you, you know, have theologies and teachings that objectify women's bodies, I think that is not helpful to uh, how young girls are growing up in Kenya. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I hope you'll uh, put a pin in some questions that you want to ask Damaris when we been able to hear from everyone else. Um, I think I'll turn next to Barbara. Um, uh, you work on female visionaries in the Middle Ages. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, a bit before Damaris's research yes. period, uh, why are the new forms of authority that they developed in the Middle Ages, and especially the new ways they conceived of Christ, significant in today's world? Okay. Can everyone hear me? All right. So thank you to Anne and for all my fellows. It's wonderful to be here, and it's lovely to meet you, and hopefully see you all in my class. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, my work is, um, my book project, Translating Christ, lo looks at female visionaries in England, France, and the Low Countries. Today we would call that the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, what I'm interested in is women who wrote in their own languages, particularly for communities of other women. And this is not often the way we think about the Middle Ages. We think about the Middle Ages as a time of Latin, of male authors in the clerical tradition. And so on, on the very uh, first level, my work is very kind of second wave feminist. I'm interested in recovering um, and introducing into especially the Anglophone literary conversation uh, women as authors that maybe we don't know about, we don't include on our course syllabi, um, that we might not get a chance to read in other ways. But more broadly, the three big issues that undergirds all of my work um, are gender, agency and authority. And what I'm interested in is how did medieval women create a space for their own voices within their religious cultures? Um, 
And these are questions that we are still asking today, right? How do, how do women around the world in any faith tradition create a space for their voice? Um, do they do that through devotional practice, through religious observance? Do they do that through text and authorship, which is my own personal focus? And mm -hmm. so um, in looking at medieval women's religious authorship, which may seem like a very narrow slice of the pie, right, in terms of the way you think about the ancient world, what I'm really interested in is thinking about the beginnings of the way we imagine ourselves, I say we both as women, but as people, right, in any particular faith tradition as religious agents. And so these are the questions that drive my work. Um, so to speak a little bit more specifically about my project, uh, the title of my book is Translating Christ, as Anne mentioned. And by translating, sometimes I mean translating, say, between Latin and English, Latin and Dutch, Latin and French, between French and Dutch, whatever you know, particular language tradition I'm looking at might be. But more broadly, what I'm interested in is translation as a broader metaphor and engine for the transformation of the self, right? And by transforming the self, transforming the community, transforming your community into um, a community of conversations and conversationalists about your lived faith tradition, whether you are satisfied with it, whether you think it needs to change. And the reason that the women that my particular project focuses on are interested in translating Christ is because he was the central figure of their religious tradition in medieval Europe. And so in translating Christ, they are transforming their understanding of Christ, their idea of Christ, what it means to imitate Christ, to be like Christ, to love Christ, right? Sometimes that's erotically, sometimes that's um, uh, in an imitative fashion. And I'm interested in thinking about the different ways that translating a visionary experience, say, experienced by the individual, almost incommunicable in human language, into a literary text engenders a transformation for the author, say, from an individual who receives a private religious experience into, let's say, a literary model for those who might read her text, especially if she writes it and passes it around her sisters, right? Mm -hmm. And this type of uh, literary experience, which is also religious shared practice, is something that we still see in different types of religious communities around the world um, in modern Catholic communities, we mm -hmm. see this. So, um, so what I'm looking at is also the beginnings of a tradition which, in which women play a much more important role than maybe we have recognized in contemporary scholarship, and thinking about how does that tradition begin, grow, uh, function across different languages and geographies and countries in my particular time period, but as the beginnings of a much longer tradition that we can still see operating today. So I'll talk more about this in my class blurb tomorrow. But um, uh, my own research um, kind of limits itself to 1,200 to 1,500 because we all have to pick a limit for our project, right? <laughs> but that was always for me the hardest part about my work because the more I research this tradition, um, in different geographical areas, even in my very small little northern European corner, the more I saw that um, growing and changing and evolving and the more work there is to do. So should I stop there? Um, That's great. Okay. Thank yeah. you so, so much. I can thank you going. so much. Yeah. Um, thank you. And thank you for being willing to answer this question. Not all medievalists will oh. well, address. It's, it's, it's the question we have to Yes. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, let me t turn next to Professor Zara Mobile on my right. Um, Zara, your research takes a philosophical approach to the meaning of femininity in Quranic texts. And you are our first research associate from the Republic of Iran. I'm very happy to 
have the chance to welcome Zara here. And also, I think we all feel it was a personal triumph to get her visa and uh, <laughs> to have her, have her among us um, to benefit from her work this year. Um, Given that your, com your audience is in Iran, who, can you tell us something about the audience for your work and how the concerns of your audience shape the approach you take to your project? Yeah. Um, I'm very happy to meet you all here and thank you, Professor Bell. Can you hear? Yeah. So, um, is it okay? Um, I'm very happy to meet you all here, and thank you, Professor Brody, for your questions. Um, the main idea of my work is to discover the meaning of being women in the Quranic stories through analyzing the narration of uh, Quranic stories. Since I have studied philosophy and I teach philosophy, your question is definitely reasonable. That's why um, uh, I have shifted to such a research and what the relation may be between this research and philosophy. So uh, I first tell you a story about um, the reason that I turned to such a study. And I explain uh, the importance of narration analyzing from a philosophical point of view. Then I will um, talk about my probable audiences. Mm -hmm. um, my MA thesis was about feminist epistemologies and theologies. I wanted to find a relation between reason and faith in uh, these two philosophical fields. Um, you know that throughout the long history of philosophical thought, a main problem um, has been always the definition of reason and rationality. Uh, philosophers have been seeking for the true meaning of reason and rationality in their works, and so many different definitions are produced in the history of philosophy. They are very different, but one common point can be found in most of them. It is that usually philosophers put reason in contrast of uh, emotions, sensations, and feelings. And as uh, Genevieve Lowy, the feminist philosopher, puts it, um, the contradiction between reason and emotions often has been symbolized in terms of gender. Um, I mean that in comparison between reason and emotion, uh, most philosophers have described uh, reason as dynamic, powerful, as the subject, as substantive, and as independent and creative. And in contrast, they have described emotions as weak, dependent, the object, and accidental. And at the same time, they have usually symbolized reason as a masculine power and emotion as a feminine power or uh, weakness. It means that reason and rationality belong to men, and emotion and irrationality belong to, to women. 
You can find many examples of uh, this symbolization in philosophical texts. And many feminist philosophers have criticized this line of thought. During my studies, however, I encountered uh, an interesting explanation for this symbolization from a different point of view. Phyllis Roney, uh, another feminist philosopher, explains that men of reason who wanted to confine rationality to themselves were not rational in fact. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guess why? <laughs> because she, she explains that, that it is because the motivation to excluding women from uh, the domain of rationality was an emotion. And this emotion was fearing of women. Hmm. Yeah, and, um, she, she explains that if you, if you can um, draw back the curtains behind these claims of rationality and subjectivity and independence, you will see a little frightened boy who is always crying and because he's fearing <laughs> uh, from a woman uh, that, that may destroy everything. Uh, you may accept or don't accept her <laughs> theory, but the, the main point is her methodology. She could um, give this theory, she could develop this theory through analyzing the way of narrating philosophical text. She, um, she asked the text, the philosophical text, these questions. Who is narrating the text? Why is he or she narrating in this way? What is her or his motivations? You know, in this method, we do not um, consider, we, we do not pay attention to the story, to the text itself. Rather, we focus on the motivation of the author, of the narrator, and the way of narrating. Now I want to shift to the other question. Um, who is my audience? Very simply, my audience um, can be all Muslim societies and um, Islamic scholars. Uh, the one who have any concern about women and gender issues. As you know, the sacred text of Islam is Quran and through the history of Islam, in about 14 centuries, a huge literature, a considerable literature about women and gender has been produced. Um, almost all, all claims and in interpretations uh, about women in the Quran can be divided into three levels. The first is the level of vocabulary and grammar. The second is the level of the meaning of text in its context. And the third level is what I call it the, the latent meaning of the text. It is what, what I want to um, uh, study about that. Um, the most uh, important body of um, the interpretative tradition of the Quran about women uh, 
um, is to be considered or categorized in the second level. I mean, the meaning of the text in its context. Um, the controversial verses in the Quran, like creation story, like uh, verses about marriage and divorce and the rest, um, are, are interpreted through the history of Islam from different points of views. And uh, I, I can claim that Muslims' actions and rules um, um, have been systematized according to these interpretations. And about the first level, the level of vocabulary and grammar, unfortunately, very few scholars have considered this level, but there are very interesting studies in this level that I cannot speak about them. And about the third level, the latent meaning of the text, it has been ignored by almost uh, scholars um, of the Quran. Very few scholars have noticed this crucial question. What is to be a woman from the point of view of Quran's God? Is there at all such a thing as being woman in the Quran? One day I suggest to get closer to the answer of this question is analyzing the Quranic stories in which any woman have a role uh, as a heroine or in a secondary role. By analyzing the acts and um, the speeches of female personalities in Quranic stories, we can find some common characteristics between them. Um, can you guess what these common characteristics may be? Uh, you, you, you cannot guess, but uh, through, <laughs> through my studies, I found that one common characteristic is speaking and talking to God. Whenever you see a positive female character in a story, you always have a picture of a woman, of a woman who is talking to God mutually. In, in most cases, mutually, and in some cases, by through praying. And another characteristic is that the most positive female um, personalities in Quranic stories are very wise and act rationally. In spite of <laughs> dominant views, um, they are very rational and even wiser than men characters. Um, they represent a special kind of wisdom that I want to describe it as a divine kind of wisdom. It includes emotions, empathy, relational thinking and hope as its fundamental constitutions. We can claim and we can try to show that being woman in the Quran is a kind of being divine and becoming more woman, I know it may be a little controversial, but I use it. Becoming more woman is the infinite process of developing our 
divine uh, wisdom. This analytic study of Quranic stories can support new approaches to the understanding and new interpretations of the Quran text in the latent level of meaning. And also it sheds light on the meaning of femininity from the Quranic gods or narrator's point of view. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. It was really illuminating, and we all look forward to more. Um, uh, and I should mention that each one of these scholars will be giving Sorry. a research lecture during the, the year. So if, if this is leaving you hungry, um, you will we'll have another chance. Um, next, I'm going to turn to Wylan Wilson. Um, Wylan, you, most, you are coming to us most recently um, from being an associate professor at Tuskegee University. Um, but you now live in beautiful Somerville, Massachusetts. Um, and I have heard it said at the Divinity School that more people in this neighborhood have been to Morocco than to Alabama. Um, and uh, I have been to Morocco, but I've never been to Alabama. <laughs> Um, so I wonder if you could help us understand what is distinctive about the setting of your study of the black church and the crisis in black women's health. What can we learn from your work that we might not learn if the study was conducted in Somerville? Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you, Anne. Um, well, what's distinctive um, about the setting of my research, um, a couple of things come to mind. But first uh, is the uh, high level of religiosity, actually. And it, I'm using the term religiosity in its sociological sense, please note that. But um, it's, it's deeply embedded in not only how individuals understand themselves and see themselves, but how they understand the world and their place in it. And uh, this religiosity is somewhat of a cultural touchstone um, for, for um, individuals in, in these uh, rural southern communities. And as outsiders, you can, it's very easy to look at it as uh, somewhat simplistic and naive. But actually, upon closer observation, um, you get to see that it's, it's richer, actually, and more complex, uh, particularly when observing um, vulnerable populations in this context, and vulnerable populations, of course, including women, those who are impoverished, as well as African Americans, Native Americans, uh, Latino Americans, uh, individuals in the LGBTQIA uh, communities as well. And so um, what I'm doing is I'm exploring this connection between health, gender, and religion, right? And so I'm examining these stories of women and their communities um, in the midst of not only economic, social, but um, political chaos uh, in their lives every day. And the goal is to open a new way of understanding power, resistance, and resilience, okay? And so in examining the, this intersection of uh, health and religion, what happens is it yields insight, actually, um, that speak to something larger. And that is actually the plight of women globally. Mm. And so these women 
in uh, rural Alabama. They are suffering from persistent health disparities, poverty, as well as social uh, marginalization, uh, like women in the global south and other parts of the world. And so what they're doing, of course, is they're making their way through and in spite of uh, oppressive forces and institutions, um, and they're working toward the economic, social, and political transformation of their communities. And so what is um, specific, to get to the second part of your question, what is uh, specific uh, about this uh, context of my research, uh, two other um, factors. First, this lack of cultural diversity within these uh, areas, these communities. And then secondly, um, how this historical sedimented inequalities um, are really entrenched uh, in, in these areas. And so that is a big difference between uh, rural Alabama and, and Somerville, for instance, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so. Um, What's, what's very important though with, within this context is while faith communities are actually claiming to, to be these places of refuge, right? Uh, and for these women who are burdened with ill health and lack of access uh, to affordable health care, uh, these religious institutions actually are in need of a reevaluation of their traditional ethics as well as their ideological grounding. And um, because what happens is there many of them, I'm not saying all, but many are continuing to hold women in these patterns of belief and practices that actually are uh, destructive uh, for their mental, emotional, uh, spiritual, and physical health. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating. Um, uh, I'm going to turn to our last speaker, Professor Anna Sun. Um, Anna, your topic, I think, took a lot of people on our search committee by surprise. Um, we have not heard about anyone else studying women's practices of prayer in contemporary China. And I read 100 applications a year. And uh, so this was really different. Uh, why is this topic important? How can your project help us understand the most populous country on Earth? Thank you. Well, first of all, let me say thank you, Professor Bodhi, for bringing this amazing group of scholars together. I'm so looking forward to learning more about your work myself. And it's a privilege and honor to be here, and so good to meet you all uh, today. So why this topic? I think this has something to do with a theme of this panel, which is engaged scholarship. So I am trained as a sociologist of religion and also a sociologist of knowledge. I'm interested in the production of religious knowledge. And I realize that the very reason that we don't think a topic about women's prayer in China is important, or religiosity um, of women um, in contemporary China is, uh, is, is something we should know a lot about, is because we have not been able to ask the right questions. Mm -hmm. um, so the reason I'm doing this work is because I want to do justice to 
to the social reality of religious life, I have been observing and studying for the past 15 years in uh, contemporary China. And my work focuses on urban China, um, really metropolitan centers such as Beijing, Shanghai, and Wuhan, and Hong Kong. Um, and we think of religion as um, thriving in rural China. That is certainly true, but it is thriving in urban China as well. But only if we know where to look. So I think of religious life in China as something hidden in plain sight. Um, we encounter really three challenges when we think about religion and especially women's religious practice in China today. The first is theoretical. Um, are, so we ask questions such as, what religion do you belong to? Are you a member of this church or that religion? What's your religious identity? How often do you attend religious service, such as church or temple? Well, those questions don't apply to most Chinese people who actually have a rich religious life. So if you ask questions really rooted in uh, um, a monotheistic or even Protestant um, uh, inferenced framework of religious understanding, then we get maybe 15 to 20 percent of the Chinese who are religious, who have a religious identity. And then we are left with 75% or even to 80 who are not religious. Are they atheists? Far from it. In fact, I have involved in two major survey projects studying religious life in China. And we find that if you ask about religious identity, we get maybe 20 to 25 people who say they're religious. But if you ask about practice, 80 to 85% of people have conducted ritual practice in the past year and multiple times. So China is indeed one of the most religiously diverse and vibrant countries in the world today. Um, um, and this, this religious renaissance has a lot to do with, with its opening up economically and politically. And that's a whole other topic, politics and religion, that I will probably address in my class when, we, when I teach my class next year, uh, next spring. Um, the second challenge is methodological. So when Anne said, you know, ask all the questions you want to ask, it's hard to ask the right questions, in fact. Mm -hmm. I've worked with survey researchers. I've been working with the Pew Research Center to try to come up with the right questions to ask. Mm -hmm. So that takes a tremendous amount of theoretical clarity, as well as understanding of the lived experience in a site you want to study. So even though I have done archival work and uh, survey research, at heart, I'm an ethnographer. So in the past five years, um, I have been uh, conducting observations and um, uh, interviews in urban China um, on prayer life. Um, and most of the interviews I've done, are, the majority of the interviews I've done are with women. And I have over 100 um, interviews that I'll be analyzing during my year here. And I will tell you more about what I've discovered through this uh, very in-depth project when I gave my talk in early October. <laughs> so I'm not going to uh, uh, share too much about that. But I just want to say that um, the third challenge is um, religious experience in China has been gendered. And um, because I think from my data, Confucian rituals are the most widespread kind of ritual practice in China. Mm. The gender issue is especially pronounced. 
Um, traditionally, Confucian life is dominated by male authority, so women's roles are very invisible. But through my work, I began to see women as taking um, very often the lead uh, in the revival of Confucian life in China today. Mm. Um, maybe I'll say one more thing I have time. <laughs> in terms of the theoretical aspect, and this is why I'm so glad to be with this group of women, because I think we share a lot of similar theoretical concerns. Mm -hmm. One reason is hard for us to understand Chinese religion beyond its polytheistic nature, and we have to get out of our monotheistic um, mindset to understand polytheistic, polytheistic practice, mm. how someone can do Buddhist things and Taoist things and Confucian things at once. Mm. But there is something else, which is a kind of hierarchical understanding of religion we very often implicitly have. We have belief, we have practice, we have magic, we have superstition. The lower you go, the more feminine, <laughs> I think the connotation is. Yeah. So the men are the ones who, 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 who are the theological authorities mm. and they, they, they follow reason, and women are the ones who follow superstition. Um, what I'm arguing in my project is that we have to have a new understanding of rationality. We cannot use what I call scientific rationality to understand religious reasoning, mm. how to make sense for example, of a ritual practice. Um, Bruno Latour uh, wrote about the factish gods, as in how we think of gods as facts. Mm. But gods are not facts. Um, in my understanding of ritual rationality, that's, that's a concept I'm working on, ritual <coughs> rationality applies really to um, an understanding of rationality through practice. So it can be a social relation, it can be emotion, but in my, in my uh, focus on Chinese religion, I think social relation, relationship of trust, for example, um, that's what makes ritual meaningful. How, that's what makes sense to people. It is rational to have a relation with a God that you cannot prove to be a fact, for example. Um, so I think my goal is that let us look through the right lens, theoretically, ask the right questions, that is logically, and a whole new religious landscape of contemporary Chinese life will open up for us. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks to all of you for really um, stimulating examples of engaged scholarship. We do have about five minutes for questions, um, uh, if there are some out there. I also hear some I want to go to lunch rustling uh, in the room, so uh, I know that's an important question as well. Um, anybody want to pose a, a question to one of our panelists? So when you were um, studying these women in Alabama, did you also do a comparative study of uh, white spirituality, particularly in uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged areas? And if there were any differences, how did those manifest in terms of their spirituality? Right. So um, excellent question. Thank you so much. Um, I did not do uh, a comparison with whites in a different 
well, no, in the similar socioeconomic uh, group you're talking about, more impoverished, right? Right. Um, but I did do it more so in a different socioeconomic group, more of middle and um, upper class. So that was one thing that I was able uh, to compare. Um, one of the realities uh, of being African American in the South is that you 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 just you're careful at the same time. So that is something that I really would love to do. But at the same time, there is the issue of just being careful. And I was warned when I first moved there by whites, don't go everywhere. Certain roads you don't go down. I mean, it was just you just be careful because you're in a very because I'm originally from Florida, so you know it's just it's all a different culture but um, a different Southern culture. Um, and so I, I was not aware of some of the, um, the dangers that uh, people warned me of in moving there, but I became aware of them <laughs> very quickly because that is a reality. Um, unfortunately, there are still um, places in our country where um, things, although things have changed, um, there are some things that have not, some attitudes and things that have not. And so, so that kind of research I would love to delve into. Um, and I did it not in the field, but more through reading, um, reading about a white supremacy movement um, and how it is kind of developed, uh, particularly on the internet and how it is mm. growing, uh, particularly through uh, the internet. And so, so I did have a chance to do that. Not so much as I would have wanted to in person uh, there in Alabama, but I did kind of through through my through other avenues of scholarship, which were yeah. So I'm Thank gonna you. I'm gonna get brave and. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> a great question. Thank you. Does anybody else want to comment on how? Um, I mean, this is such a fascinating example of how. Um, to conceive of a control group in research when race is a category of analysis or when gender is a category of analysis um, and the limitations on um, research possibilities. Anybody else want to delve into that, that messy <laughs> terrain? <laughs> well, then we'll take another question and I'll ask you later. Um, <laughs> And is there another question? Yeah, in the back. Hi, this is also a question for Professor Wilson. Um, I, in your title, you use the word bioethics, and I'm curious about what that means within this field of study. Because oh, I usually yes. don't hear that word in religious studies. Right, okay, so, um, so looking at at bioethics, uh, there is a kind of mainstream definition. It's particularly having to do with healthcare ethics, medical ethics. So you're looking at technological innovations uh, within the medical field. Um, you're looking at issues such as euthanasia, uh, abortion. So it so there is a kind of a 
a streamlined, mainstream definition that is more in line with medical ethics. But um, what was wonderful and unique about my context uh, there in the rural south uh, at Tuskegee University, where uh, the Tuskegee, they call them the Tuskegee experiments, but it was really the United States Public Health Service uh, uh, experimenting on African Americans uh, there in the rural south. Um, but being in that context, bioethics was much more broadly construed. So it was medical ethics, healthcare ethics, but it was also dealing with ethics in a broader frame of looking at issues of social justice, health disparities uh, among vulnerable populations as well. Thank you. Uh, I think this will be our last question down here. Uh, so that leaves around 750 who do have some affiliation to some folk religion or whatever. And I think in your research, as you identify the hierarchies of religion, uh, I'm interested to know, interested to uh, to have your view, especially um, uh, women in China. So 700 or that larger part of the population, which bucket of religion would they be most closest to in terms of their spiritual as well as uh, uh, superstition uh, practices. And that I'm asking more from the point of view of uh, divine entrepreneur or religious entrepreneur, if you will. Thanks. Those are great questions, and I, I, I think I can only answer them uh, properly in a book. <laughs> uh, but I think. <laughs> Yes, we could discuss this in my class. Uh, we don't quite have the right numbers, so I can't tell you, can't really even speculate, but from my field work, I can see that women don't make that distinction between spiritual practice and superstition. A lot of the scholarly assumptions we make, you don't find in the field. So you see women practicing what we may think of as bad magic, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and they, they, um, they transmit bad ethical teachings um, in their practice. Um, they, they, uh, some of them also care about the sutras, the, the Buddhist practitioners, without turning their back to other ritual practices from other religious traditions, such as certain Taoist traditions and a lot of Confucian traditions. So the picture is a very, very, um, if, you, if you like to think it in that way, messy one, or if I, the way I see it is just absolutely vibrant and, and, and fantastic. So we, we need to, try to make things more complex mm. rather than simplify. Well, that's a great last word um, <laughs> to take to lunch. Thank you all, and we look forward to seeing you throughout the term.